Hey everyone, thanks for listening. This is an interview with Dr. Daniel Bartal, currently Professor Emeritus at the School of Education at Tel Aviv University in Tel Aviv, Israel, and founder of the peace group Save Israel, Stop the Occupation, which seeks to end the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and establish a Palestinian state. Professor Bartal is a leading scholar in the field of political psychology and has focused his work on intractable conflict, which is more or less a violent conflict that has persisted for roughly a generation and is resistant to resolution. Professor Bartal defines it in more detail in the episode. Over the last three decades, he has studied the psychological foundations of intractable conflict and peacebuilding, as well as conflict prevention and reconciliation. He also has decades of activism experience himself, particularly in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Our discussion focuses on the nature of hate, genocidal beliefs, and paths to peace. This really couldn't be more relevant right now, given the recent events in Nagorno-Karabakh, Kosovo, which is heating up again, and uh, you know Sudan and the continuing kind of simmering conflicts around West and Central Africa. This was recorded over Zoom in a hotel that didn't exactly have the best Wi-Fi, so it's a spotty recording. It required some edits. Um, I, I apologize for the poor quality audio and the somewhat awkward edits, but uh, I am putting together a better recording rig as we speak. Thank you again for listening. If you would like to support No Parking and Parking Lot financially, please subscribe to the Substack. I'm currently in Romania at the Ukrainian border and have received my press pass from the Ukrainian military. So soon I'll head into Ukraine to do some work on the ground. This work will focus on the impact of war on civilians as well as some other stories. But uh, going forward, some of the stories on the Substack will be paywalled because of the amount of labor it will take to produce it. But uh, there will always be some content on there for free subscribers. So thanks again for listening. Love you all and hope you enjoy. You talk about uh, intractable conflicts a lot. That's a, a term that you that you use a lot. Can you uh, explain the characteristics of what you would consider intractable conflict? Yes, uh, intractable conflict uh, is violent. Uh, where you know because there is a dimension uh, between intractable and tractable conflict and they differ tremendously so th- those are the two ends of the dimension yeah you have on the one hand intractable and the other many intractable and in between the intractable conflict are uh, first very violent uh, they last at least 25 years, and this is important mm. because my my uh, thinking is that conflicts are made by people, yeah. which means that the socio-psychological repertoire of people is the most important determinant of outbreaking of conflict. People have to think that uh, my goal are uh, negated by the goal of the other side, and if they have to realize it, believe in it, 
with confidence, and this is the conflict or in the mind of the people. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no other way to discuss conflict, but on the psychological level, it mm -hmm. must be uh, in the repertoire. And I, I am talking a lot about this repertoire, which will I, I, I will explain what are the details yeah. of uh, this. But it's a conflict of zero-sum uh, nature, which means that uh, each side believes that cannot compromise because it will lose something. Uh, those are conflicts that uh, are uh, expected to last very long time because the two sides uh, do not believe, they do not trust the other side. Yeah. So they don't feel that any compromise is possible. Uh, and those are about uh, uh, important or uh, holy, you can say, sacred uh, goals. So they are conceptualized as, you know, the group, cannot exist, cannot, you know, continue without the particular commodity. It can be autonomy that they need, you know, cultural autonomy, as is the case of Kurds. It can be over territories say, like Israel, that believe that without the West Bank, uh, cannot express its uh, identity right. or it can be socioeconomic, you know, so it's... Uh, so those are uh, the type of characteristic of intractable conflict. Uh, intractable conflict are uh, with a lot of stress and uh, uh, obviously people are killed, so you, we have bereavement, uh, involved in this conflict uh, because of the violence where people yeah. are killed and uh, uh, property is destroyed. Uh, and uh, the last one is that they need a lot of investment, uh, not only in uh, with regard to uh, weapons, ammunition, of which, which obviously is required, but there is also uh, an investment, psychological investment. Yeah. Because uh, people have to agree with the narratives that you tell them as a leader. Um, because if they don't believe in it, people will not be willing to be mobilized. And uh, what is very important is readiness to sacrifice own life. Mm -hmm. It means that you have to kill, uh, uh, you have to be ready to be killed. Mm. And this is a very important cost uh, in conflict. So you need mobilization of the society members, either Kurds or Turks uh, or Chechens or uh, in Kashmir, uh, Pakistani or uh, Indian, in Israel, Israelis or Palestinians, 
uh, and people are killed. So yeah. you have to have the readiness uh, for such. And uh, this means that, as I noted before, the narrative that you tell is very important because through narrative, it's a psychological, there is no other way uh, to convince people, to persuade them. So um, the narrative that you tell is, is, is kind of weapon that yeah. you use in order to persuade, you know, from the very early age. And I said that it uh, has to last uh, even uh, over, over 25 years because it's a generation and uh, you rear up generation, yeah. which means you start already in kindergarten, the indoctrination, as mm -hmm. I can say, uh, to prepare them when they will be adult, so they will uh, volunteer in some uh, way, in some uh, societies like Kurds, you know, so they volunteer. Chechen have to volunteer, but it's like uh, Turkey uh, or Israeli society, you are obliged to uh, go to the army. Yeah, so more yeah. or less, this, those are the characteristics of intractable conflict. It seems that there's a, um, the, a sense of identity, self-identity with... Um, the conflict like with um like you know you know uh a children growing up and you know being indoctrinated into these beliefs it becomes such a part of a, a person it's almost you can't separate the belief um in the conflict from the person itself does that make sense uh, not really it's not separated but we talk about uh, social identity, collective identity, and personal yeah. identity. And uh, they are kind of one whole. So you cannot say, oh, this is personal identity and this is social identity because they merge. So uh, everybody has social identity. Yeah. You, you as a, you know, Romanian, Russian, Israeli, Jew, etc. And at the same time, I am Daniel Bartal with my own repertoire, yeah. but the social identity is interwoven into yeah. my personal identity. And very often uh, people differ with the social identity. For example, uh, some groups, the social identity is extremely important, yeah. uh, more important. So we are talking very often about individualistic society and collective society yeah. or traditional society, where, uh, you know, in the European societies, you found find a lot of in, in the, the individualism, uh, which means that the person is important, and the idea of democracy yeah. is that person is important. But in many traditional societies, the collective, the clan, the tribe, 
the nation, the society is important and I fight for, uh, and this is matter of socialization. You know, it starts very early yeah. and what starting with parent, but often in the traditional society, you grow up with extended family, with a grandfather and yeah, grandmother yeah. and uh, aunts and uh, uncles and so on. So you are reared up into the collectivistic society that you understand. In other societies, nucleus one, where you grow up with only with parents and your brothers. Yeah, yeah. And you develop very much individualistic because your parents are uh, emphasizing your achievement and not group achievement. Your ambition, not really ambition of the group. Yeah. So there is a, a difference in societies. Yeah, I think... Um you know, uh, Western, you know, European and American, you know, I'm American, so I grew up in what I would consider to be an individualistic society, you know, I think they would have a heart. Sorry. You know, when you talk about, um, a, about American society, I lived many years yeah. in American society. It's very difficult to generalize because it's a very heterogeneous society. Latin America are different. Americans are different from yeah, yeah. American and you know different. So it's only I am warning you that it's very <laughs> difficult to talk about American society. It's not a homogeneous like Danish, Polish. Right, right. American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it, it would be hard for people in, a, in an individualistic society to understand some of the motivations of people who have a more collective society, you know, like these ideas of, um, you know, uh, like like Kurds, for example. Right. And, and Chechens, their generational understanding of their identity and their and the, the conflict is something that is hard to understand, I think, for someone who you know, grew up in an individualistic society, you know, because you don't have those bonds as much, you know, people can't no. understand why, like, why do uh, people, I think some people don't understand why people are willing to sacrifice themselves for a collective conflict and a, uh, a collective society, you know? You, you, it's, it, first, you are right. It's a matter of socialization. Yeah. So it begins with responsibility, with loyalty mm -hmm. to the group. But, uh, uh, you know, as we discussed, so, you know, uh, colonialism or post-colonialism, people, even in individualistic society, can understand that you struggle for independence or you struggle for autonomy. These uh, uh, values are uh, also important for individualistic society. Yeah. So empathize very much with, uh, let's say, Hong Kong, where they want uh, to be a kind of independent uh, than uh, or have independence from China. 
So uh, in terms of value living in global societies who are not disconnected from values uh, that appeal to universalistic values, and this is freedom, equality, obviously, yeah. uh, etc. Mm. <coughs> well, I want to get back into, um, I had sent you, and this was a while ago, but I had sent you a, uh, a screenshot from a, um, some interviews with a, a Russian woman um, who was saying, you know, basically uh, about Ukrainians, you know, all Ukrainians should be killed and, and children and, and everyone should be killed, you know. And it was, uh, I've seen many interviews like this with, with uh, especially um, older Russian people who believe this, you know, about Ukrainians that they want them, you want to kill them all and all that stuff. And I thought, you know, this is what made me reach out to you because I see this woman and, you know, she's probably 60 or 70 years old. She's probably, you know, a grandmother, right? She's probably, you know, a loving grandmother and an and a otherwise functioning member of society who also holds these very extreme beliefs, you know, these genocidal beliefs. So I want to ask you how, how did these things develop? Like, I don't know if, if Russia, you couldn't really call it, I don't know if you could call it intractable, you know, Russia, Ukraine, but how do these feelings develop? Um, or, or how did otherwise normal people come to believe such violent things? Yeah, you know, it's not only the Russian, you know, German population during the Nazi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rwanda, you know, and Bosnia, uh, uh, the Serbian. So it's not uh, really uh, something special when you think about German society. Uh, so during the 20s, was really the, the cultural, scientific society, and within very short time turned to be most brutal and cruel and uh, etc. So this is all again, you know, coming to the same point. You know, in in the 14th century, 15th century, where uh, the army was mostly mercenaries. Uh, Swiss or whatever, you paid them money, you could tell them anything that you wanted, and uh, they had to march on Pisa or Padua or Venezia uh, without asking many questions because they were paid. I mean, or people were loyal to the crown, but today you have to provide a very convincing, uh, you know, uh, narrative that explains. You, you, I was one, only, you know, uh, watching a film uh, at the moment, just before I connected with yeah. you. And it's film about lies, power of the lie. Yeah. Uh, and I saw, you know, in the film, uh, Trump. And Trump was saying, for example, exactly in this sentence that I turned to you. So, you know, he said, Mexican 
are rapers, uh, drug users, etc., etc. People listen. If they believe in it, you know, some people will say, Rashis, you know, I don't believe in him. You yeah. know? But millions and millions who are uh, unsatisfied, they are afraid of immigrants, that they will uh, lose their identity, that they will take the jobs that they have, you know, they will dare some the race, etc. They have needs. So I would, I would just one second. I will explain yeah. it different. People have needs, and the needs have to be satisfied. You know, need of mastery, need of understanding the world, need of identity, need of self-esteem positive, uh, need of security. You know, those are the needs that people need in order to live. And these needs have to be satisfied. Now, how they are satisfied? One way in a very intangible way, which means they need food that you have to provide. But how do you provide security? How? It's yeah. a psychological concept. So, you know, sometimes with atomic bomb and with thousands of tanks is not enough. You know, people may feel insecurity with, uh, right. In right, it's, it's in your head, it's in your head, yeah, yeah. In the head, like Israelis, you know, yeah. because of the past experiences, like Holocaust, right? So if you know again about Holocaust and I want to defend you, Netanyahu is talking in this way, you know, because Iran wants to destroy you, wants atomic yeah, bomb. Yeah, Hezbollah, yeah. you believe in it. So yeah. you turn and believe to the leader. And the Americans to believe in Trump are people who feel insecure, who don't have a firm structure of identity, etc., etc. Yeah. So Turning now to Russia, this woman believes to Putin, Putin but there are also, uh, you know, thousands, thousands of Russians who escaped, who did not believe him. Yeah. Uh, that he, that uh, Russia, that Ukraine is uh, Nazified and there are Nazis there, etc., etc. But so you have to believe in the. Uh, in the message that the leader tells, and many Russians, you know, are uneducated, you know, live in rural area, uh, area and they accept uh, Putin as uh, uh, epistemic leader, which means that he's epistemic authority. So they believe, so she yeah. believes in this narrative, uh, like, uh, Hindus, some of them believe in uh, what Modi say, tells them about yeah. Muslims. Israeli believe what uh, Netanyahu tells about Palestinians. And here you have, you have. So it's um, in mind of the people. Yeah, it seems that um, 
uh, fear and um, uh, like it, like a belief that you are defending yourself, right? Right. And like these, like this, this woman, and and you see it with other people too. They feel like Americans with Trump. They feel that though they are being attacked, and they are doing things, and they have to defend themselves. Now, what I think is interesting about that is that that's what allows people sometimes to 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 attack others, you know, because they but they they still believe that they're defending themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like absolutely. Because no one, I think most people, I think the majority of people, I don't know, like they can be no, violent if they were defending. They wouldn't be violent if they believe that, like, they, like attacking is not something that people like to do. People want to defend themselves, defend others, defend their country, you know. So, uh, you know, I just think that's yeah. an, an interesting element, you know, that that it's really a matter of, well, I feel as though Ukraine or is attacking me. I feel as though who Mexicans are attacking the U.S. and and they need to be um, defended against, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. So the key element is threat. Threat is causing to insecurity and fear. And if yeah. you feel threat from economic threat, cultural threat, religious threat, that's all, all kinds of threat. And obviously uh, in, uh, in very real terms, it's a phys physical threat, uh, threat then you feel insecure and you feel fearful. And this is very uh, potential factor that uh, determines to what extent you will be uh, the, what you, you know, the, I can say slave of the narrative. Yeah, you, yeah. you can be on your right. So this woman can be very nice to uh, the neighbor, she can care about the grandchildren, about her son, etc. Be you know some you know I watched film uh, once, and this was extremely important for me. Uh, the film was about children of uh, of men who were. Uh, commanders of concentration camp and uh, labor camps. Yeah. Children. And um, and uh, they were interviewed. Uh, they were in group interviewed. And they were telling how the father, who was a commander of extermination day, was a very nice person, a very yeah. nice father. Uh, always remembering the birthday day and holiday and he calls yeah, it. Yeah. It's absolutely normal. We have many faces and uh, I don't know what we will do if we will be persuaded that there is a threat, physical threat to my existence. I don't believe in the words of Netanyahu but many of his supporters believe yeah. so Palestinians are um, or Hezbollah in Iran are dreaming, dreaming. It's not true. They, yeah. you know, are fed by the rhetoric of, you know, it's a mutual interaction. 
between the rhetoric of uh, yeah and Netanyahu, each of them talking the same way. They don't feel even so they yeah. talk in the same way. They need each other almost. They need right, each other right. in in well, a way. You yeah, know. You, know, you know, some people say that you need an enemy in order to solidify your identity. Right. Because again, it's that, it's the other, you know, it's just, you know, uh, out group, in group, you know, you right, feel not, right. you feel close to some people because you have somebody to compare to, you know. Um, I wanted to, I was reading one of your uh, papers and you, um, there was this idea of uh, these researchers in Colombia and you were talking about this idea of meta beliefs. And uh, I think they did, uh, they talked to people about uh, what they believed about FARC members, about, um, you know, their unwillingness to, to integrate into society. And they were able, the researchers were able to kind of soften their beliefs about this by showing them interviews with FARC members. And I'm assuming the interviews probably said, you know, we want this and this and this and um you know, they had similar wants that, you know, society and all that. Has that approach, This it's such a simple idea, really, you know, just get people to talk, get people to interact with each other in some way, to challenge beliefs. Has that been used in, in any other conflict? Like, how important is that, the, the belief of what you think the other person believes, you know? Yeah, you know, right. You know, um, uh, contact theory is very important one, and uh, tried in uh, Northern Ireland and in Cyprus and different places. But uh, the story is that uh, you know when through your life you hear the same music, you accept it, believe in it. Yeah. So one meeting with other group will not change. Yeah. I am uh, thinking about like, you know, a communist who was real rough or ultra-Orthodox Jew. So he believes uh, very much in God, etc. So what, what, what will you do? So you come to him and say, okay, there is no God or the communist doesn't work, yeah. no, we're not convincing. So it's very, very difficult. And the social psychologists, political psychologists, you know, suggested many different ways in order uh, to change the mind of the people because the slogan is, it begins in the mind of the people and you have to change the mind of the people in order to achieve peace. So, you know, there are different ways. You know, Northern Ireland, it took uh, many decades, you know, from 68 up till uh, 28. So, which means 30 years of talking and trying. In Israel, it's over 100 years. Uh, if you Take Chechen is 300 years. 
in uh, Kashmir, it's uh, also 70 years. Yeah. So it's very difficult to convince someone. You know, so you need a brave uh, leader like De Gaulle, maybe De Clark yeah. in South Africa. De Gaulle, you know, really came to power on the ticket of uh, Algeria is French and change it, his mind, seeing that France is paying tremendous costs for the continuation of the conflict. And uh, within a relatively short time, uh, between 60, he started 62, they were signed Avian Agreement that separated Algeria, even did not pay any compensation to Frenchmen who lived in Algeria. They had to escape and leave yeah. Algeria and move back to France. So, you know, there are different models uh, how you can do it. Yeah. Uh, we tried uh, in Israel a number of times, but uh, there were almost circum circumstantial uh, events that prevented you know, one is of uh, the uh, architect of uh, Oslo Agreement was murdered by a Jew. Another one, uh, we came close, close. The Prime Minister Olmer, who was uh, pursuing a policy of peace, was uh, accused of bribery, etc. Yeah. And he left the office. So there are circumstantial. Uh, sometimes uh, conditions that uh, change the, the fate of the world. Yeah, and you know, it's crazy that someone could, well, I guess it's not that crazy, but you know, being assassinated for signing a peace agreement, you know, you'd think, I don't know, it seems like, it's just a crazy thing to do to, to, to think about killing somebody for trying to prevent conflict, you know? Um, but that's, that's the way people are. And, and actually Israel, I was, I was thinking about, you know, Gaza, right. And this idea of having contact and how contact is good. Generally speaking, it seems like for people to understand each other and, and prevent conflict, you know, in Gaza, you have a literal wall, that is up right around all of Gaza and that keeps Israelis and Palestinians away from each other. And therefore it doesn't allow them as many opportunities to see each other, to interact with each other, to get used to each other. And so then all you have is the belief in your mind, you know, and, and you can't get past that, you know? So I think that's really interesting that physical distance can contribute to this, you know? No, it's true, you know, that uh, up to the Oslo Agreement, many Palestinians worked in Israel, about 300,000. And you, you could meet them, you know, by the oil station and by gardeners and etc., etc. So the relation you know, was occupation, but uh, there were a lot of 
interpersonal relationship between Jews and Arabs. The Oslo Agreement changed dramatically the situation. And then with the Gaza disengagement with Gaza. So at the moment, we still have about 150,000 Palestinians working in Israel, but you don't see them in street. It's yeah. coordinated in some way, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there is no, as was before, in restaurants, in, in you know, daily, daily. Yeah, yeah. No, you don't see them. You see because they come as group and go to construction. Go to work, right. So we don't see them. How do you but think... You are yeah, how how does that have you noticed? Has that affected um, mindsets in be, between people you know, like uh, or or you know, regular Israelis on the street? Have you found personally that the lack of contact contributes to certain beliefs? Yeah, I don't know. Clearly, you know, pe yeah. people say like, "Oh, yeah, I am ready to withdraw from West Bank." You know, I am ready to withdraw from even Jerusalem, but I don't trust them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so so I tell them, so what? You know, you are willing, but you don't trust them. So nothing of your words. You easily say that I am uh, ready to compromise, but it's not true. Uh, so uh, at the moment, Israeli public is very hawkish. Yeah, uh, right is the seventy-five percent of the Israeli. But we are in the mid, as you know, probably uh, of uh, a process that is unknown to us. Thirty-seven weeks uh, there are demonstrations every Saturday because oh, the yeah. government tries to overhaul the legal system. The last 10 years, right? You've been um, working more as an activist, yeah? Like- Yeah, yeah. What do you, what have you learned from working with people on the ground? Like, what are you doing and, and what do you, what have you learned from that as far as uh, with, with conflict? Yeah, you know, I, in fact, I told you before, so it is extremely difficult to change the beliefs. And yeah. I try to develop ways uh, that will uh, be easier uh, to accept the alternative narrative, which is narrative of peace or compromise, you know, that the partners, yeah. Palestinian can trust it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the media, mass media, social media, the leadership is against me, the educational system, so the atmosphere within compromise. So it's a very bad situation. So cannot be easily overcome. And I hope that the present demonstrators, which have a slogan saying that. Uh, uh, cannot, dem democracy cannot exist with occupation. Mm. So it 
penetrate into society and um, it will change as is a present installment. Yeah, well, I think either way, having just having demonstrations, having people out on the street, meeting, talking, you know, exchanging ideas and things is always, I think, a positive thing. I think that's yeah, it, true. It you is. know, no, no matter what the the no matter what the demonstration is about, as long as people are out and talking and exchanging ideas, I think that's like a really important um, part. I mean, that that happened, you know, here with um, a lot of the protests in 2020, George Floyd and all that. You know, it wasn't just really about that. You know, people had talked about other things. Uh, same thing, Occupy Wall Street. There was all sorts of ideas that were that were being shared you know um and and that i think ultimately is is a positive thing you know um i just we can wrap up soon um i kind of wanted to talk broadly again you know what do you think is the i don't know i mean this is a it's a big question but like all of these conflicts if they're intractable if they're deep rooted in society what do you think is the, the biggest thing that, that can be done to try to solve them? Like, what do you see as the roadmap overall for these conflicts? Is it different with each one? Or do you see an overarching idea of how to sort of uh, start to, you know, resolve these conflicts? Look, um, I, I will try to give you unequivocally, you know, response. In my view, uh, you know, of the large picture that civilization has to move step forward. A geo-economic geo uh, situation is a such that uh, leaders uh, pay attention a lot to the interests and especially to money. So as a result, you know, Biden don't, doesn't want to be involved in the conflict here, or uh, uh, he tries to, to, to uh, make a deal with Saudi Arabia, who is in, which is involved in Yemen. Uh, nobody cares about what is going in Ethiopia, Ethiopia and Republic Democratic of Congo, but you and Russia, obvious people are involved. Um, uh, I think that it's a next step of the international community that will set uh, rules, laws uh, with regard to conflicts. So we have the first step, you know, the Hag uh, tribunal, etc. Yeah, but they are weak, and, and uh, the countries don't pay attention. China doesn't. Yeah, attention. they don't. Yeah, the superpowers. So I I believe that we need two, three forward steps that will cement these agreements that exist. You yeah. know, human rights or whatever. Uh, but nobody keeps them, you know. Yeah. So the politician uh, should uh, maybe the next generation of politician, next generation will Let's be. Maybe. Maybe, yeah, maybe. You know, 
I, I am kind of pessimistic. I think that people who go to politics, uh, many of them uh, are of the types that we have today, like Trump. I agree, uh, yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, you need to climb and lie, manipulate, etc. Yeah, yeah. And not everyone can do it. Um, so I am pessimistic that it maybe will take uh, dozens of years for this type of leadership. We can wrap it up. What, anything, any final thoughts, anything you think that I should look into, anything that uh, I should read or suggestions like that? You know, maybe my last comment is uh, somewhere something that can, you know, there are ideas in the world of today. Mm -hmm. Really great ideas. There are great civil societies in something. There are international organizations. But politicians, you know, the ones who are leaders of the country, are not ready for what is found in the libraries of the university. And there are so many good ideas that could be translated to action. 